You are listening to Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. I am Miriam from Yale Law School. I'm Christy from Harvard Law School. And we are here with an episode you have been waiting for. Yes, this episode is all about waiting. Let's say you have a dream school in your heart and you have not gotten in. Or at least not gotten in yet. Whether you are waiting to hear or on a wait list, this episode is filled with advice for you. We are going to play a game inspired by my obsession with another podcast, and that's most likely two. Listeners, if you can guess which podcast brought me so much joy last winter, I will post a fun picture on the HLS Instagram and tag you. DM at HLS Admissions on Instagram if you know the answer. Christy, you're so social media savvy. I'm very impressed by you right now. <laughs> I could never do any of those things. <laughs> I don't have a TikTok yet, though. Okay. Well, next, when, when we're done with the podcast, you'll have time for TikTok. <laughs> exactly. In this game, we are throwing it back to high school superlatives. Most likely to. We will give our superlatives across many things, law school admissions. Miriam, what is our first most likely to category? Okay. I'm going with the application component that is most likely to disappear by the year 2030. What do you think, Christy? What is it? I think the test requirement. Oh my God, me too, 100%. I don't even know if it'll be 2030. Yeah, I think Eight it's... Years. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it'll disappear entirely, but I think it's definitely on its last legs. That's for sure. So for some reference listeners, the American Bar Association Standard 503 requires accredited law schools to have applicants submit a valid and reliable test. The LSAT is one. The GRE is the other most typical. I believe some law schools do GMAT. I think that's right. Yeah. Maybe a couple others. But that's, that's, those are edge cases. It's really primarily LSAT and a little bit of GRE. Sometimes people ask, are you, Christy, personally going to get rid of the test right. requirement at HLS? First off, that would not be just my call solely by myself. That would be a much larger discussion with faculty and the dean and the like. But as long as you want to be in an accredited law school currently, you need to abide by standard 503. So we'll see what happens. But I suspect 2030, it'll be gone. Right. And it's currently under discussion at the ABA. And one factoid I always think is interesting is that law schools are the only graduate school and also undergraduate schools don't have this as well that is required by their accredited accrediting institution to take a standardized test. Right. So all other schools are allowed to make that decision on their own and many choose to take tests, uh, but they get to, the, to make that choice and we do not. So we'll see if we are allowed to make that decision for ourselves or not in the next few years. All right, Christy, it's your turn. Round two, the application component that is most likely to tank that application. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, most likely to tank an application. I am going to say that I think in terms of frequency, it is probably addenda. Because there's character and fitness stuff in there. They also tend to be a place, whereas I, I somewhat semi-famously like to say judgment goes to die. And so I think you get a lot of really bad nuggets that end up buried in those addenda. What do you think, Christy? Agree, disagree? I absolutely think addendum. If I could give it to the second choice, I think uh, it would be letters of recommendation. Oh, yeah. that I agree with that. Yes. It's a distant second. Addenda is definitely mm. the most common. So keep a careful eye on those addenda for all those applicants out there. They actually matter quite a lot. 
All right. So this is fun. So let's do one more each, but this time let's make them about our colleagues just for kicks. So Christy, which law school admissions dean do you think is most likely to appear on a reality TV show? Okay. So (laughs) listeners (laughs) from season one will remember that Johan Lee from Northwestern has a kid who competes in is it called American Ninja American Warrior? American Ninja Warrior, yes. Junior? <laughs> yes, yes. Junior American Ninja Warrior? I don't know. Oh, yeah. So definitely the most likely to appear in the background on a reality show has to be Johan, right? I agree with you 100% that As that is correct. But I'm not totally sure that meets the question of most likely to be a contestant. That's a tough one, right? I guess we have to maybe have some parameters of like, what is this reality show? What about something like Amazing Race? Amazing Race. Which two of our colleagues would be a great Amazing Race team? (laughs) First of all, yes. (laughs) You mean besides the two of us? We would be amazing, but I think that's outside the parameters. I want to say, I'm going to throw one out there. I'm going to shout out to um, Ann Perry uh, of Chicago and Renee Post of Penn. Oh, they'd be very good. Penn Carey. I think they would both be very good at that, but also I think they're good friends. Yeah. And I think they would be amazing on Amazing Race. What do you think? I think those, I was thinking of Kristen Thies Alvarez. Ooh, for which reality show? Pretty much anyone. Pretty much anything. She's got like a, a fun yeah. personality. I, yeah. I mean, oh, I agree. I ha- Did I could you see hear her on reality TV? This is a little goss that I got from one of my um, students yesterday. There is a contestant on Love Island USA Uh who is applying to law school. (gasps) Can't wait to read that application. I know. Love Island. Your last but not least. Okay, we'll do another admissions dean one. Which admissions dean is most likely to become a motivational speaker? Oh, my gosh. I have an answer in my head, but okay, you go, go first. You, no, no, you go first because you I already have someone in mind. And Konye. <gasps> and Konye yes. would be amazing. Can she be my motivational speaker? I would hire to be my therapist, my executive coach, <laughs> my motivational speaker, any of those things. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. All of those things. So this is in Konye Awarabon, who's the dean of admissions at Columbia Law School and a total all around rock star. Very motivational. Yes, uh, definitely. All right. On to our discussion. Yeah, we're going to start to get serious. Stop spilling the tea. (laughs) Our episode today focuses on the part of the law school admissions process that applicants find most agonizing, and that is waiting. Yes, tis true. This ain't Amazon Prime, folks, and you are unlikely to get instant satisfaction in law school admissions. There is plenty of waiting to be had from waiting for your LSAT score release to waiting for your recommenders to upload those letters. And this episode is going to focus on three major stages of waiting, waiting for decisions, waiting when you're on a wait list and waiting to attend your dream school until 2L year by applying as a transfer applicant. We sort of shoehorned in yeah, the transfer did. discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it, fe- it fits thematically, if not exactly in phrasing. Okay, jumping right into part one, waiting for a decision. So set the stage for us, Christy. How long might an applicant wait from submit to decision? Really, in all honesty, it can run the gamut. Some schools might get back to you very soon. I've heard of applicants receiving a decision just a day or two after pressing submit. Which it just makes me wonder how they are able to do that so quickly. I am I am amazed and somewhat stunned that that is even possible. Yeah, we, we could barely process the file in one business day, let alone read it and set up a decision release. But 
I digress. <laughs> I have questions, but yeah, so maybe for another no, podcast. Say no more. <laughs> for other schools, including many of the most selective schools, you could press submit in September and experience radio silence all the way until March or even April. So broadly speaking, what would you advise an applicant to do or not do during this time? Do develop a meditation practice. Just kidding, <laughs> but only sort of if only you can, sort of. <laughs> but only sort of if you can try your best to let law school admissions go once you have your applications out the door. Meet up with your friends, read a novel, focus on work projects. There is no amount of agonizing or scrolling through Reddit that will make the time go faster. This is easier said than done. I know. What would you add? So, of course, I agree with you, Christy. I think it's rare that we disagree. Uh, the one point that I would add is to try and remember that while the waiting feels long, understandably feels very long in the moment, it's actually fairly short in the grand scheme of both law school and even shorter when you think about your whole legal career. Try to hold off on getting mentally set on a school just because they admit you earlier. You want to really give yourself a chance to consider all of your options and not be swayed by admissions timing, which can be a little bit arbitrary. Let's say you you have press submit and you are now in that waiting period. Should you go visit a law school? Would it help if you did? And will that make your decision come any faster? It's hard to speak for all law schools. Obviously, I, I can only speak for YLS, so maybe it will help somewhere. Come visit campus if you want to experience the place and obviously to do some due diligence about what it might be like if you are admitted. I think for most places, it's not going to make a lot of difference, either in terms of the selection timeline or in terms of the process and the ultimate decision the school is going to make. I will say I have seen anecdotes um, and heard some anecdotes of applicants getting admissions decisions while they are currently visiting that campus. I have to say I have... Very mixed, leaning negative feelings about that. I think it really favors applicants who have privilege of both time and money. And I'm not sure that it's fair to those people who don't have those kinds of privileges. I don't know how you feel about it, Christy. I would say it probably makes for a really cute social media moment, both for the applicant yeah. and for the school. Um, so this is where I've mostly seen is like pictures on Twitter yeah, and, and it's for sure. Um, it's super, it must be an amazing LinkedIn. feeling. Yeah, yeah. of course. Oh, of yeah. course. It's, it's probably, I'm sure it's fun for everybody involved. It's obviously yes. great for the applicant and it's probably really fun for the admissions folks too. Oh, I would love it to be able to admit someone in person would be so much fun for sure. But, but I'm with you. I'm not in favor of rewarding those with the means and times to visit. And I will say that it, if you come visit campus at HLS, it will make no difference on the time. Same for us. Yep, Not absolutely. Bit. How about emailing or calling the admissions office to get an update on your application status? Will that impact the outcome of your decision and will it make the process go any faster? Broadly speaking, it will not. If there was a decision to release, the school would have released it already. So I would generally try to resist the urge. I know how strong that urge can be to ask schools for a status update, at least for a while. We're really trying to work through the files as quickly as we can at a reasonable pace. And we're not going to pluck your file out and give you a one-off decision just because you called or sent an email. And if your communications show bad judgment, that can really backfire on you. It might speed up the decision process or change the decision at the end of the day, but not in a way that you appreciate. 
Perhaps the one exception is if you have a specific deadline on a binding scholarship offer or an offer of admission, and you haven't heard back from another school that you would prefer to attend. LSAC actually provides specific guidance in this situation through its statement of good admissions and financial aid practices, which are actually not binding, but most schools try to abide by them most of the time. So uh, the LSAC guidelines state that member schools should, and now I'm going to quote, allow applicants to freely accept a new offer from a law school, even though a scholarship has been accepted, a deposit has been paid, or a commitment has been made to another school. Ending the quote. Therefore, schools should never ask you to withdraw from schools you have not yet heard from, really at any point in time. And just to state the obvious, logging into your status checker repeatedly is not going to speed up the waiting game at all. True, 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 true. <laughs> Though I do get the urge to log in and see if there's any news there. For one thing, sometimes the status checker has updated. Sometimes, actually, for us, the status checker updates right before the email goes out. Those emails go out in these these email windows. So the status checker goes, and then there's an email window that can be set, you know, an hour later. So you might catch it just in that moment before the email goes out, um, and you might feel a sense of progress if you see that that's happened. So even when schools do have these status checkers, uh, and they tell you things like under review one, under review two, or whatever those things say, try not to read too much into it. Um, they often Again, there's always something going on behind the scenes to cause those notations to pop up, but it may not be what you think it is. Uh, don't make yourself crazy trying to read into it. The number of days it takes for your application to sit under review is rarely going to be the same as someone else's application. Okay, what about submitting additional materials or updates? Can that speed up the waiting game just to kind of provide a new resume or another letter of recommendation, or maybe some kind of letter of interest before a decision has been made? In a word, no. Schools generally set out what they want in their application instructions. If you've submitted everything a school says they want, best to just let the school do their thing. It might even slow down the process to start requesting an addition of new material, this and that, to your file. If you have a major update to share, particularly a character and fitness update, which you are generally obligated to share. or Yes, you are obligated to share yes. those things. <laughs> um, or perhaps if, you, you know, if your fall grades just came in or there's something new in your professional life, by all means, submit the update. But know that while it might change the assessment of your file, it's not going to speed up the process. All right, so let's switch gears now to part two of this waiting game episode, the wait list. So now you've waited and waited and waited for your decision and it has arrived and the decision is you're on the wait list. More waiting. <laughs> More waiting. Ah. <laughs> for some, this could be a delightful surprise. You apply to your, your reach school and you never thought you really had a, a, a good chance and the wait list actually feels really positive. You could be thrilled. But for many others, it's a disappointment. And for still others, just the frustration of having to wait more for a final decision can overcome any other feelings you might have. So Christy, let's start with a timing question. When might someone expect to receive this kind of waitlist decision? Technically, I suppose it could be any time after you press submit, even in the fall of the cycle. But generally, waitlist decisions start to appear winter at the earliest. Most schools wait that word again. Right. <laughs> wait. Most schools will wait until the very end of the cycle, typically March or April, to release the entire waitlist at once or in a big batch or two. 
Yeah, that's what we do. We basically do one big round of waitlisting um, after our final admissions decisions, generally late March, early April. And just to define our terms here, what the waitlist means is that you're not going to get a decision of whether you have been admitted or denied until after the deposit deadline has happened. Correct. Which is May 1. Which for many schools is May 1. For our schools is May 1. There are some schools that will admit people off the waitlist prior to May 1, but generally speaking, what a school is telling you if you're on the waitlist is we have not rendered a final decision on your file and we were we are unlikely to do so until after all of our deposits are in. Exactly. So at HLS, we've tried a few different approaches to the waitlist, but we similarly wait until February or March to waitlist applicants with typically a very small batch sometime in February and then a very big batch at the end of March. So why are we doing all this waitlisting? I know applicants are always complaining about it on Reddit and other places that it's this cruel practice of just, you know, delaying the inevitable. So why why are we such cruel and evil people, Christy? Well, the waiting game goes both ways. So just as you as an applicant may be waiting to hear from a school, Schools are waiting to hear from their admitted students, and it all comes down to yield, which is the percentage of admitted students who accept the offer of admission. Schools take data from past years to predict how many offers of admission they should give out based on yield from past years. But like so many things in life, the best laid plans of mice and admissions deans often fail in the face of unforeseen forces. Put less poetically, a bunch of folks might say no or Many more than expected might say yes, but may say yes, but please defer me for a year or two years. When schools know they may have spots available for the fall, they will keep a wait list to fill those spots if the need arises. Right. It's like our security blanket, basically. And just to spill the admissions dean tea a little bit more, many of us like to admit people from our wait list rather than admitting absolutely everyone before the decision deadline. Once our decision deadline hits, you know what your incoming class looks like. And it gives you a f- final chance to shape the class in the way that you want if you can admit some folks from the waitlist, if it's gotten a little bit misshapen due to outgoing deferrals and admits who turned you down. So sometimes a strategy can be to under-admit just a little bit so you can give yourself some room to admit folks from the waitlist and make sure that your class ends up well-balanced, well-rounded. And if you admit too many people, you cannot put the genie back in the bottle. If your class is too big, there's just nothing you can do about this. And we saw this yes. for many, many schools saw that this. That very over-enrolled. <laughs> way over-enrolled. And that's hard on everybody. That's hard on the registrars. They're trying to put people in courses. That's hard on the student services offices as they're trying to service this glut of students for the next three years. You can definitely fix a class that came in too small from the wait list, but you definitely can't fix a class that's coming in too large because you admitted too many people. So that's another reason why it makes sense to aim for a class that's just under the size that you really want and then go for the wait list. So now for the big hard question. If you're put on the wait list, should you get your hopes up? How can you really calibrate your expectations reasonably? I am an optimist by nature, as I know you are too, Miriam. So I, I am. Would, <laughs> we so both I would are. say if you're an applicant on a wait list, keep the flame of hope alive. Is that is that cruel in setting up people for disappointment? What do you think? I think it really honestly depends on the school. So, you know, I think it depends is the, the famous lawyer phrase, and I think it applies here as much as, um, uh, you know, as it does to a lot of questions. So much of my knowledge 
of this comes from perusing things like Ellis Data and Reddit, which I hate to say is authoritative, but it is definitely my sense that there's some schools that routinely admit a lot of people from the waitlist. I think you do, Christy. You admit a fair number of people yes. from the waitlist most years. Yes. I think my plan is generally to admit a small number of people from the waitlist each year. That's my goal and my hope. Some years it's a really small handful. Some years it's a larger handful. And I think there are schools that fall into various parts of that spectrum. So you should just calibrate yourself, remain hopeful, but also realistic if, if you're able to do that. Yes. Like so much in life, it just really depends. It really depends. And if you're in a position to hold out hope all summer, definitely do so. But if you have a particular date when you know you have to have finality, let's say you have to put down a deposit on an apartment, just withdraw by that date and just allow yourself to move on. It's totally fine to do that. It's also totally fine just not to stay on the wait list at all. We actually admitted one of our current one we admitted him the day before the date he had in his head as if it's not by this date, I'm going to withdraw. That's so funny. I admitted someone this summer who had literally packed his car to move to law school and was about to hit the road the next day. And wow. I think it was crazy. And so I, I called him and he's like, oh, my God, this is perfect timing. I can just unpack my car <laughs> because he was moving coast to coast. So that was oh. also a really crazy kind of lucky timing for us and for him. Yeah. As we're talking about all these waitlist success stories, applicants want to know, what should they do to be that person who gets the call? What should they do to increase their chances of coming off a waitlist? Okay, you'll all be shocked to hear that you should, wait for it, follow the <laughs> instructions that the school provides. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> we're at the end of the podcast and we're saying the same things over and over again, but it is worth repeating. Schools have very specific and very clear instructions most of the time about what they want. And it can take a lot of different forms. There's some schools that only interview waitlisted applicants. So if you're a waitlist candidate, you should expect to interview at that school when you might not have before. Some schools really want to see your final transcript if you're a college senior. Some many schools, I would say most schools, want some sort of letter or similar expression of interest. Or maybe they want you to fill out the form. Follow or, the directions. Or maybe they want you to keep filling out forms over and over again. Just Just do whatever it is that they want if you're serious about that school. Yeah, it's, it's just not standardized. It's not, not at all. And even at the same school, it might change from year to year. So it might be helpful for the two of us to share how each of our offices communicate with waitlisted applicants just to show two examples of how it can go. Yeah, sure. So this is an area um, where, again, you might see a ton of different approaches from different admissions teams. And even I think both of us have changed our our team's approaches in our in our times and our jobs. Yeah, some schools don't even call it a waitlist. Yeah, you can see terminology like on hold or reserve uh, from schools, which essentially means the same thing. Or super secret special reserve. or super, Yeah, exactly. I know. Like even the same admissions scene, as you were saying, can, might take different approaches year to year. So my teammate Courtney and I have really changed it. Okay, back to the question. Aside over, how okay, do you communicate right. with waitlisted we applicants? And detoured, <laughs> we frolicked and detoured, Christy. We frolicked and detoured. Okay, so we have sort of narrowed in on this approach. So we're very clear with our waitlisted applicants and uh, a new part of their applicant portal will become visible at that point, which includes a straightforward form to confirm that they're interested in staying on the waitlist. And we ask them as part of that form to set out a date on which they want to roll off the waitlist. That can be until registration, or it can be a specific date at any point 
wait in the summer. We're also very clear with our waitlisted applicants that we would like them to submit a brief letter of continued interest, um, also called a, a LOCI or an LOCI, um, that lets us know that they are very interested in matriculating at YLS if they're admitted. Um, once we make the decision to admit someone off the waitlist, everything moves so quickly that we don't want to mess around if someone isn't sure about what they want to do. And most of our waitlist admitting happens in early to mid-May. That's when we try to do our first big chunk of waitlist admitting um, after our class is uh, – our decisions are mostly in. And when that's done, we'll usually communicate with everyone who's left on the waitlist to let them know that most of it is done and we may admit a handful more people over the summer as needed if people end up deferring or having emergency situations. But it, it's largely done at that point. What about you? So we've kind of tried to – couple different approaches over the years, but I think we have hit a steady state. So we similarly require waitlisted applicants to complete a simple form to accept their waitlist offer at some point before May 1st. So you might get your waitlist decision in March. You have until May 1st to fill out the form. And I guess that reminds me, I never said that part. We also have an opt-on waitlist. So if you don't accept your offer, you're not on our waitlist. So right. thank you for reminding me, Christy. I appreciate it. Right. And importantly, if you get the waitlist offer in March and you're not sure if this is the right choice for you, you do have a little bit of time to decide right. whether you're yes. same Same with us. Absolutely. So right after May 1st, so we, we hear from all of our admitted students, um, we wake up May 2nd, and we're going to send an email to everyone who has accepted the waitlist offer um, with an overview of our waitlist policies, a link to our waitlist FAQs, and our guide to letters of continued interest. Then each week from May 1st onward, we send what we call the weekly waitlist email every Monday afternoon, and it sets out our expectations for the coming week in three areas, interview invites, offers of admission, and potential deny decisions. So we both kind of mentioned these these letters that sometimes have to get written, these, you know, most typically called letters of continued interest. So what do you actually call them? Do you call them Lokis? Do you call them LOCIs? Are we going to have another massive dispute? <laughs> tomato, tomato. I don't know. Tomato, tomato. LSAC, tomato. LSAC. Oh, exactly. Oh, you should share your update on LSAC Oh, I do LSAC. have an LSAC versus LSAC update that I heard from someone on my team. So LSAC calls itself LSAC. I'm just putting that out there for the world to know. Just, just as a further quiver in my, in my, I don't know, arrow quiver for my arrows. I don't know. That's a horrible metaphor. What do you have? What does the arrows up? go into? A satchel? I don't know. What do they go into, Christy? I have no clue. Your arrow satchel. <laughs> Clearly, I don't do a lot of archery. <laughs> so LSAC and then letters of continued interest. I suppose you call could call them LOCI, but we we use Loki internally. Yeah, I think I, I think I kind of use both. I think I mostly say Loki, but then sometimes I feel silly saying Loki. So I say L-O-C-I. I kind of flip flop on it, my, even in my own head. Someone asked me once if they were low C. Oh, no, that no, is incorrect. They're not. They're not low C. We can authoritatively say that is incorrect. Okay, with all that settled, <laughs> I will offer my thoughts on Loki. Again, letters of continued interest. This is a great opportunity for you to provide sort of your closing argument for your application. Lay your cards out on the table. Tell the admissions committee why you want to come to Harvard or why you want to go to Yale or wherever else you want to go. All right. So you've probably heard both of us say not to include a YHLS or YYLS discussion in your personal statement. That remains correct, but that is not true of these Lokis. This is your moment to share why you want to come. And Loki really work 
best if they are genuine and honest. And don't feel pressure to like sound particularly intellectual or anything. If the reason that you want to go to this school is because of its location or you have a significant other working in the area or even something really personal, just say that. Don't feel like you need to pretend it's all about being a research assistant for Professor So-and-so. Totally agree on that. I think that sometimes those those personal connections can really be helpful when we're reviewing the folks on the wait list. So what would you say on formatting, Christy, for these uh, low keys? I don't think there's really definitive rules for Loki, but it's usually referred to as a letter of continued interest. So maybe make it a letter, put a date at the top and say, Dear Dean Jobson. It's not as visually appealing to me when it's just a Word document with two paragraphs and no header or introduction or anything to tell you what you're looking at when you're looking at the PDF. And I think when you write it as a letter, it can sound more like your voice and sound a little more personal as well. Yeah, I think that's generally the right way to approach it. But we're definitely not taking off points if you don't put a letterhead on it or anything like that. Totally fine. Just to go back to first principles for this document, there are three primary things that generally can be found in a Loki. The first one is, I will definitely come if admitted. That's really important if it's true. And so I would definitely make sure you say that somewhere in it. The second one is, this is why I want to come to X law school. We've already talked about that a little bit. And the third one is any significant updates. So Number one, pretty much required. And the other two are helpful if you have something interesting and substantive to say. So there's another sort of weird thing that's specific to the waitlist, and that is something called feeler calls. You want to explain what those are, Christy? I would be happy to. They have an incredibly creepy name. Super creepy. I want to (laughs) change the name of them, but I don't know quite what's a feeler calls. Yeah. So despite the creepy name, uh, they are actually a really good sign for you if you get one. I'm not sure if every school does them, but I know we do. And I think you do as well, Miriam, right? Yes, we do. So basically someone from Dartmouth Law School will call you up and say, hey, we're this close to admitting you or we're considering admitting you. Would you come if we did? And the only correct answer to that is, oh, my God, yes, 100%. I'm so excited. I'm crying right now. (laughs) Tears, excitement. That's what you want to present as during that call. So I had a couple of people this past cycle who were a little squirrely on these calls. They were not admitted. Because this is, we don't want to deal with, with squirrely at this point. We want people who are definitely committed to come. Um, one of them then sent us an email immediately thereafter. This has actually happened to me twice, once this cycle, once a few years ago, saying, oh my gosh, I know I might have come across as a little bit weird. And I, I said I wasn't sure, but I'm actually 100% sure now that I've had a few hours to think about it. If you admitted me, I would definitely come. And we admitted both of them, and both of them are now at YLS. So if for whatever reason you panic In the face of your feeler call, you can always make it up with an email where you express that 100% commitment. But know that that's what we're looking for with that feeler call. What do you think, Christy? Do you agree? These these feeler calls come... We really do need a better name for them. (laughs) Feeler calls. Um, Every time I say it, I feel very creepy. (laughs) So they do kind of come out of nowhere. So I actually sympathize with people who feel a little caught off guard. They're in the middle of the workday. They're being kind of put on the spot. If it feels like it didn't go as well as you thought it did, feel free to call the office back or or write a nice email. email. Yeah, Yeah, just write a nice email. Absolutely. But but know that generally we are looking for people who are going to sign on the dotted line. So picture you're an admissions dean. You have four spots left in the class. Of course, you want those last four spots to go to people who are just beyond thrilled, like totally, totally delighted to hear from you and can't wait to come to 
Dartmouth Law School. So one other thing that might be worth mentioning is financial aid off the wait list. So how do you handle financial aid? So we do our absolute best to give everyone who's admitted off the wait list enough time to apply for financial aid and receive an award. So that usually takes a couple of days turnaround time as long as they're hustling. So we're not going to wait and give you, you know, a week to get your forms and you're going to have to hustle to do it. Uh, I don't want people generally speaking to have to make such a big decision in a vacuum. Um, but I am clear with them that our financial aid policies are all online. So they should already have a pretty good sense of what our financial aid policies are. And we do generally ask in the feeler call whether they're sitting on a large scholarship elsewhere. And if they are, we say, well, would you be willing to give that up? Because that's not something that we're likely to be able to give them uh, because we have need-based aid. What about you? How do you handle that? So we also, as a reminder to listeners, both YLS and HLS do exclusively need-based aid. And someone who gets off the wait list gets the exact same financial aid award exactly that they would the have same. gotten if they got in back in January. Yes. You can be admitted during orientation and you will get the same aid you would have gotten if you were admitted in December. And yeah. that is actually different than a lot of schools because I think a lot of schools are very clear with waitlisted candidates that they will get no financial aid. Yes. So um, we have never been able to process financial aid awards quick enough to be able to guarantee that someone will get them. We just are not able to do it in our system. And so we gave on it long before me. We gave up on it long, long right. ago. And maybe that's because you're admitting so many more people off the wait list. For us, it's it's a reasonably small number. And so our financial aid office is able to manage the volume. I can imagine if it was more, it would be unsustainable. Yeah. So and during the summer, the the like larger, this is something I think folks don't think about. In higher ed, a lot of people go on vacation over the summer, including central offices that do things like generate Harvard HUIDs or um, allow you to get the login to the systems even to apply to financial right. aid in the first place. And that can take four days for a waitlisted applicant. Right. And that's before you even log in to your financial aid application. Exactly. And I think that's important to know that different schools will handle this differently. So for us with need-based schools, you're going to get the same aid, but you may or may not know exactly how much it is before. For schools that are merit, you may or may not get any merit aid. So it's a really good thing to be very thoughtful about um, because that may influence whether you decide to stay on a wait list if financial aid is something that's really critical to your decision making. And it's something you should decide if you're comfortable with ahead of time. And I will say, I think most schools try to be very transparent and clear with yes. waitlisted applicants about what to expect. All right. Any final piece of advice for our waitlisters out there? I'm going to say something that might sound really obvious, but I think it's worth saying. You don't have to do this. <laughs> right. it can, it's not for everyone. It can feel like it's the path of least resistance to just accept the waitlist offer, you know, fill out that form. Why not? You can see what happens. You might be curious, but you're signing yourself up for some number of months, theme of this episode, of waiting, more waiting. And if you're not up for that or if it's going to cause you anxiety, the waitlist might not be the place for you. And it's okay to let school X where you're on the waitlist go and just focus on getting excited about school Y. So as as Taylor Swift sings, you know when it's time to go. Okay. So of course, my final piece of advice is about a pet peeve. You know, I love them. I feel like we're showing ourselves to be ourselves. You're all about Taylor Swift and I'm all about <laughs> my pet peeves. So just don't say that you're totally committed if you're not. I haven't had this happen in a few years, but it happened a while back and I'm still annoyed by it. So we had an applicant who wrote a letter of continued interest, you know, Yale is my dream school. I will come no matter what, you know, I will cut off an arm if it means I could be admitted, whatever, all that good stuff. And then we did the feeler call, same thing. Yes, a hundred percent. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And then within 24 hours, it sort of changed their mind. 
you know what? It's fine. Everyone gets to make their own decisions. I totally get it. But it really felt kind of crappy. Like they kind of knew all along and were just, you know, kind of stringing us along. And it deprived the person we ultimately admitted in their place of the chance to apply for law school housing. And it also caused an enormous amount of administrative churn and work at a time when we are unbelievably exhausted from the admission cycle. Tons of people are on vacation. And it just really, frankly, sucked. So I don't believe that when you get that feeler call, you don't know if you're sure or not. If you're not sure, just say you're not sure. That's fine. Knowing that there's going to be a consequence to that. Don't lie to us. That's not cool. It's not. It's really not. And the person who really, yes, the administrative churn is a pain for us. But the person who really misses out is that person who did pack their car and started driving all the way across the coast. And then then had to turn around. Right. right? Or the person I had that year who wanted to be in on-campus housing and missed out on the lottery date because it took me three more days and that was already done. And so it can have like real consequences for real people. And I think people sometimes don't think about that. Yeah. Don't let your curiosity get in the way of other people's lives. Yeah. Um, can I give one more final piece of advice? Oh my God, of course. Okay. So every year, some of the most amazing students at HLS come off the wait list. And I'm sure at Yale as well. A thousand percent. Everyone starts orientation the exact same day, no matter when they got in. And no one is going to know or care what date you were admitted to a school. It's just a non-issue. So you've, if you get in off the wait list at a school, know that you are poised to rock it just as your classmates are. Yeah. And don't feel like you have to tell anyone. It's totally irrelevant. You belong and deserve it just as much as anyone else. And yeah, I would never think about it again once you're admitted and you've made that decision to attend. Okay. Finally, perhaps the ultimate in waiting games, the transfer process. So most law schools, not all, but many of them will accept some number of students to transfer in as 2Ls or second year law students. So first, if this is something that intrigues you a little bit, you need to very carefully check the eligibility requirements to transfer at each school. Typically, it's pretty straightforward. Whether you attended your first year of law school full-time or part-time, you still have to have completed basically one full year of coursework at a U.S. ABA accredited law school, and you have to be in good standing at that first school that you attended. Some law schools accept a ton of transfer students, dozens of them. Christy, I think you're one of them that accepts tons of transfer students. Sure are. Okay. Others, and we're one of these, we accept a handful or a couple of handfuls of them every year. This information is available to you. So check out those handy dandy APA 509 reports that we've already talked about this season, and you can see the exact number of transfer students each school takes. And those 509 reports actually contain a really good amount of information about a school's transfer cohort. So you can see how many students transferred into that school the previous year, all of the law schools that that cohort attended for 1L year, along with the number of incoming transfers from each of those 1L schools. And if the cohort is five or more incoming transfers, you will see the median 1L GPA for the group. And if it's 12 or more incoming transfers, you will see the 25th and 75th percentiles for 1L GPA as well. As you dig through these past ABA 509 reports, you may notice patterns for different schools. Perhaps one school typically matriculates almost exactly 15 transfers every year, and they always come from other schools in the geographic region. Or you may see a lot of variation. So at HLS, for example, the number of incoming transfers has ranged from 32 to 71 
just in the five summers that I've been in this role. And our transfer cohort comes from a whole variety of 1L institutions across the country and all up and down the U.S. news rankings. We typically have multiple Boston area law schools represented in the transfer cohort, but even then, not always. It all depends on the transfer pool for that year and how much space exists in the class for incoming 2Ls. So for us, the number of transfer students we admit it has remained pretty stable. So without having looked at the reports, I didn't take the step of looking it up. Maybe I should have. I would say it's generally in the 10 to 15 range in terms of numbers. And we tend to take applicants both from some of our peer law schools, but also from a reasonably wide range of other law schools as well. And so that's a pretty good segue to a major aspect of the transfer process that applicants often don't consider, maybe because it's kind of a black box. And that is that so much depends on the transfer applicant pool. And how would you know anything about the transfer pool for a school anyways? I don't think there are any schools that regularly release numbers about the applications they received. And you certainly can't find admit rate information on any school's website that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's kind of the ultimate black box, isn't it? I wish all of admissions was an ultimate black box. (laughs) It would make it so much less stressful. So much less to report. The ABA requires law schools to publish detailed information about application volume and admit rate for 1L applicants. So we talked about this in our first episode this season, number of applications, numbers of offers made, number of enters coming in from not this past year's applicant pool, et cetera, et cetera, but not at all for the transfer process. And schools don't tend to release this. Should we explain a little bit about why they probably don't? Sure. So it's probably different school to school, but I would guess it's a combination of a few factors. In the end, here is my speculation. There's only so much time in the day and admissions offices might not feel that they have the bandwidth to put together a beautiful transfer application cycle profile every year on their website. So much work goes into those cycle profiles. Yeah. Yeah. And the the transfer cycle also happens during the summer. It moves super quickly for everyone involved. And that's right when admissions officers are also trying to go on vacation with their families and have a life. And the focus in the transfer process is really singular. Process the files, read the files, select the cohort, make sure they have their email addresses and financial aid awards, and then get them registered for classes so that they can get going. I suppose at this point, we should maybe say something else about timing because it is a really quick and very specifically time process. As Chrissy said, this is kind of like a mad sprint. Applications generally open sometime around May. I think some schools may open them even earlier. But practically speaking, at most law schools, no one is going to even touch your file until June at the earliest. Most schools want to see your full year of 1L grades before they make a decision on your file. And 1L grades usually aren't in until after Memorial Day. So once those 1L grades, spring grades hit, it is a mad dash, both to process the files, make sure they're complete, and then go through the selection process. And if you get an offer of admission, don't expect to be wooed with a parade of virtual events and calls from faculty and alums, the way we do it for our 1Ls. You'll have just a short time to respond to the offer of admission. Schools have to get transfer candidates set up in their systems right away so that they can participate in summer career recruiting opportunities and get registered for courses. So there just is not a lot of time for much else. Exactly. The transfer process goes by in a blink of an eye for everyone involved. Miriam, how do you and your team think about transfers at YLS? What are you looking for in a strong transfer applicant? 
So I'm going to maybe think about this by dividing it into two buckets, things that are similar to the way we look at 1L applicants and things that are a little bit different. So on the similar front, of course, we're looking for applicants who can do the academic work at YLS, who will contribute to our community, and we think are overall kind and collegial people. We also hope that the transfer class overall is reasonably diverse and contributes to the diversity of our school community. On things that are a little bit different from the way we look at 1L applications, we focus most on the 1L academic record and the letters of rec from law school faculty. We focus much, much, much less on the LSAT score. We do look reasonably carefully at the undergraduate record and any other you know, graduate transcripts that might be in there, but they're both less important than the law school record itself. We are also looking for a YYLS discussion in a way that we really aren't at all for our 1L applicants. Transferring has real costs, and we want applicants who have thought things through and have a solid reason for why transferring to YLS makes sense for them and why it's the right place for them to finish out their law school careers. Any key advice for applicants, Christy? Sure. So approximately half of our applicant pool in the transfer process are reapplicants. So this is somebody who applied for the 1L year, they were not accepted, and then they're applying again. We do look back at the application you submitted for your 1L year. And oftentimes people thought they might have wanted to do something, and then 1L year is this really clarifying experience, and now they have a stronger sense of what they want to do. Know that that is totally fine and expected. Yes. So if you came into law school and you applied for 1L year and you said, I'm really, really committed to being an advocate for immigrants and refugees, and then now you have just caught the antitrust bug and you see that as an important public service in its own right, and you have kind of this whole vision, don't feel like you have to go back to your 1L application and explain yourself or explain why things have changed. We know that things have changed. You just spent a whole one year in law school. Yeah. And sort of as a, a an adjacent point to that, I think it's really important that you write a new personal statement. Absolutely. And we used to have this process, and there's no point going into details about it, where people could basically resubmit a very similar version to their 1L application if they had been waitlisted. And we stopped that process in large part because when people resubmitted their 1L, the, the personal statement they'd submitted with their 1L application, they felt so much weaker than the new uh, personal statements that transfer applicants submitted when they were writing them from scratch. Because as Christy said, that 1L year is so clarifying, so illuminating, creates so much sophistication for people who are then applying as transfer students that those those waitlisted applicants who had been tremendously strong couldn't compete. So it actually, you should really feel amazing that within one year, you're going to be in a totally different space and really use this as a chance to talk about what you've learned, why you want to transfer. Um, and I've heard this from a bunch of people who've transferred that it's actually much easier to write it at that point. It almost writes itself because it's just a much more functional document in a way less personal. It's more about what you learned that one all year and why you want to transfer to this new school. Yeah, I don't know much, if you've heard the same thing. Oh, absolutely. It's more of a statement of purpose. It's not really yes. a personal statement. Yes, I agree with that 100%. So just a final note on transfer students. They are awesome. At both of our schools and many others, transfer students are really considered a key part of the community. Faculty, fellow students, they will look forward to meeting with you. I had co I had coffee with a transfer student this morning, actually, before recording this. And it, um, I know I'm super proud of all the transfer students I've admitted over the years, and I've really gotten to see them excel. And so if you're in the waiting game and you're you're waiting all the way through one all year to potentially reapply as a transfer student, know that people will really value you when you arrive.
Yeah, there's something extra special when it's someone that you remember from the 1L application process. Yes, I love it. It's like they proved us wrong, right? Like we weren't sure about their 1L applications, but we can see from their first year performance in law school and what their law school recommenders have to say about them that we were wrong. We were wrong. Yeah. They do belong I love HLS. being wrong for, in that way. It's like a great feeling. And I'm going to make this slightly personal, but we're almost done. So why not? So I always do this on my transfer webinar in first session that I do, um, that I have a very special place in my heart for transfer students because my husband is actually a double transfer student. He transferred both for college and for law school and I met him in college. So if he hadn't transferred, I wouldn't have met him. And then he transferred in law school to be with me. So this is the story. So the the dean of admissions at the time when he applied to transfer was this wonderful woman, Megan Barnett. Uh, and I had gone in to tell her, you know, my my serious boyfriend is applying to transfer. Keep an eye out for him. I think I actually cried a little bit in her office. We had been long distance for, you know, years at that point. And then when he was admitted, you know, it was extremely emotional, obviously, for both of us. And when I got this job, my husband, Peter, turned to me. He said, oh, my God, Miriam, you're going to be someone's Megan. And so oh, that's how I feel Pete. whenever I admit transfer <laughs> students that maybe I'm someone's Megan. Like, what an amazing thing, because she really changed our lives. So I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for every single transfer admitted student. And yeah, I agree with Christy. They contribute in an enormous way to our communities. They have a real comparative perspective in a way that is clarifying and helpful, and I think brings just important, important perspective to both of our law schools. So yeah, I'm not saying transferring is right for everyone. It's probably not right for most people, but if it's right for you, you should definitely think about it. All right. So to all those listeners waiting and waiting for this episode to end, good news. The end is nigh. The waiting, as Tom Petty says, is the hardest part of law school admissions. The waiting is the hardest, hardest part. part. But you're going to get through it. And if you're waiting for our next episode, it drops in two weeks with a very, very, very special series of guests. Twelve guests, in Twelve guests. Yes, the editing on that one was tough. Twelve amazing guests. They're worth waiting for. This podcast is produced by Ryan McAvoy from the Yale Broadcast Studio.